Father in heaven, make us to know your ways, teach us your paths, lead us in your truth and teach us for you are the God of our salvation. Lord, you are good and upright, therefore you instruct sinners in the way. You lead the humble in what is right and teach the humble his way. So would you instruct and lead and teach us by your spirit now through your word that we might see Jesus and hear us for we pray in his name, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Micah, the book of Micah. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 776. If you're using a different Bible, I don't know what, on what page it's on, but you'll, be, you'll find it between Jonah and Nahum, sort of towards the end of the Old Testament. And we're going to begin a series together on the book of Micah. And so we're going to begin at Micah chapter 1, verse 1, and read through the end of the chapter. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria like a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gates of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Belafratha, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, and nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zahan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Merath wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle. 
for they shall go from you into exile. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, well, one of the things that we, we see when we open the books of the prophets is we see in the prophets some of the most sublime statements of the righteousness of God, some of the most wonderful promises of the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but if you're going to consider the prophets, you also have to hear not just the sublime words of promise, but also the severe words of judgment. And that's why maybe we don't spend as much time going through the prophets, because we like the sublime, we don't like the severe. Um, we, we find it difficult to wade through. There are names and places that we don't know. Um, I'm sure when I read Akzib, you didn't immediately think of a place on a map. Um, or, you know, a city that you knew. And so these can be difficult to orient us to what the prophet is talking about. But I think it's in, important for us to go through the prophets from time to time, to hear their statements of judgment and to hear their promises, uh, to think about what they have to say, because we know that what they had to say to their people in their day is important for us to hear in our day. Um, that there is no word in Scripture that we can ever say, well, that was just for them, it's not for us. Um, it's for us in a profound sense, and we need to think about these things and, and sort our way through them. So hopefully we'll come to an understanding of what Micah is doing and what the Lord is doing through him. Uh, we're told at the outset that Micah reigned during a specific period of time, during the reign of three particular kings. Um, that's a range of time that at its maximum spans 53 years, from about 740 B.C. to about 687 B.C., um, this means that Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, although they prophesied at the same time. Um, they both seem to have prophesied in Jerusalem, so they prophesied in the same place, and they probably were a comfort and encouragement to one another, uh, that they were both bringing the word of God in difficult circumstances. But we know about that time that not only was it the time of Isaiah, but it was a time of particular trouble in Israel's history. Israel was extremely troubled in many ways at this time. Um, both from outside threats that threatened them. This was a period of time when the, the kingdom of Assyria was on the ascendancy and they raided into Israel and Judah several times throughout this period, um, laying waste to many different places and constantly being an external threat. So it was a great time of outside threat to the people. It was also a great time of internal corruption. Uh, this was a time of great spiritual faithlessness in, among, in and amongst the people of God. Uh, where they turn to idolatry, um, outright idolatry, or mixing uh, false religion with the true worship of God. Um, and so there was much spiritual corruption going on, and there was also much social corruption going on. Um, there was much oppression um, and injustice of those who were weak and vulnerable in the society. And so these are the kinds of things that Micah comes to, to preach about. Um, and he begins in our passage with targeting specifically idolatry and brings a terrible pronouncement of God's judgment um, on the nation for its idolatry. And so as we think about this pronouncement together, I want to think about it as we see three particular things. We see first a sovereign judge who comes to judge the people. Secondly, we see a shattered nation as this pronouncement of judgment promises the Lord's severe judgment on his people. And also how we, we see a hope here of a surviving remnant. Uh, that God does not wholly destroy his people, uh, but preserves a remnant for his name. So that's how I want to think about this text together with you, a sovereign judge, a shattered nation, and a surviving remnant. 
God comes forth as a sovereign judge in verses 2 through 4. That's the mighty picture that Micah brings of God coming forth um, as a judge. And in many ways, this would have been familiar language to the people of God. Maybe it sounded somewhat familiar to you. Uh, Maybe you thought of other places in Scripture that sound like this, with God coming forth, coming forth to go to war. The warning cry is lifted up in verse 2, that everybody in the earth should pay attention for what's about to happen, that the Lord is coming out of his place. Um, The Lord is coming out from his holy temple. Um, In this particular context, what that means more is coming out of his palace, that he's coming forth as a king. Um, coming forth in his glory that's both wonderful to behold and also terrible to behold as he comes forth. Uh, He comes forth from his holy temple and he is on the war path. Um, Someone who comes out from his place, that's a way of describing a king going forth to war. Um, That's how the Lord is pictured here. He's coming out of his palace in, in, in his glory, but he's coming out to go to war. Um, that's how he marches forth. He's coming out of his place. And that, and that come, becomes clear that the Lord is coming out to, to go to war, to bring judgment in the way we hear uh, his coming being described. Um, I like one commentator who said, when the Lord comes out and makes war, nature cringes and crumples at his coming. And that's certainly what we see, don't we, as the Lord comes forth, there are these, these images of his, of his irresistible power um, and his fierce anger, that as he comes out, he tramples the, melt, the mountains and they melt under him. Uh, they melt under his tread like wax melts. Maybe boys and girls, you've seen a burning candle and you've seen the, that hard wax become soft and start running down the side of the candle. That's what happens to the mountains when God steps on them. They just start to melt like wax. When he steps in the valleys, they break open. Um, It's this picture of nature falling apart at the coming of the Lord. It can't stand before him. Um, Another commentator put it this way, When the Lord pours down the fertile valleys into deep canyons like cascading waterfalls down a rocky slope, then man's place of life and hope is entirely removed from him. He crushes the mountains. He crushes the valleys. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. Um, This is a picture of God coming forth to go to war, irresistible in his power. Maybe we can think of Malachi 3, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Um, The Lord is coming forth to war. Now, this is familiar language, I said, because there are other pictures in the Bible when the Lord is going forth to war. This is an image that the people of God would have recognized. Um, And maybe as Micah starts, if they didn't know what we know from the outset, that this is a prophecy against Samaria and Jerusalem, they might have said, well, that's a good word, brother. Thank you for sharing that. Because we need the Lord to come forth and go to war. We need him to come forth and go to war against Assyria, those vile idolaters. Those vile people of God, we need you to come forth. And so often when this language is employed, that was what God came forth to do, to go after his enemies. Um, maybe, maybe you heard in this a little bit of Psalm 68. 
God shall arise and his enemies shall be scattered and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. When God comes out like this, it usually means good news for his people and bad news for his enemies. It's usually a cause for his people to rejoice that God comes forth to make war with his enemies. Psalm 68 goes on to say in the next verse, but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before the Lord with jubilant joy. And that's what Micah does in this prophecy. He takes that familiar image where everybody would have been saying, yes, the Lord is coming forth. And then he makes this radical turn in verse 5 to show them who God is coming against. Who does God come to make war with? What are the mountains that are being trod down and the valleys that are being split open? It's not Assyria. It's Israel. Look at verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Jerusalem was the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom at this time, the two tribes that were part of the southern kingdom. Samaria was the capital of Israel, the, two, the ten tribes in the north. And what God is saying is this whole nation I'm coming against. And there's no one can say, well, he must just mean Israel, not us. Micah is from the south. Micah is from Judah. And Micah is probably prophesying in Jerusalem and if, he had ju- and if the Lord had just said the transgression of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel, they still might have said, not us, them. Surely the Lord's not coming against us. But he leaves no place for that when he calls Jerusalem the high place of Judah. This is where this, this prophecy would have taken a shocking turn for the people of God, that God is coming against them and he's coming not in defense of his people, but to judge them to judge them as covenant breakers. These words for transgression and sin that appear in verse 5 make it clear that they have completely and comprehensively broken his covenant. They have willfully transgressed the commandments of their God. They have become a covenant-breaking people. And this covenant-breaking people is precisely the people who should have known better. It's bad enough when the world rebels against God because the world has not known God. But when his own people rebel against him, those who have known him, it makes their iniquity all the worse. The same similar thing is said in, by, by Amos in, in chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You're the only people I've known from all the people on the earth. You're the only people I've made covenant with from all the people on the earth. And you are the covenant breakers. You are the ones who've transgressed the covenant. You're the ones who've acted against my name. And why is this relevant to us? Right, you said, I remember at the beginning of this, you said this applies to us somehow. And last I checked, I don't live in Samaria or Jerusalem. So how does this apply to me? 
Why is this not just history? Um, well, because we too are a covenant people. Right? We are the people that God has chosen from among all the nations of the world. That's what it means to be part of the church, to be signified that you've been called out of the world to be part of the people of God. Um, that's what baptism means to everyone who's been baptized. You've been set apart from the rest of the world. You've been identified as God's covenant people. But you notice it's not enough just to be God's covenant people. It's not enough just to bear that name, to have that identity. It's not enough just to be the covenant people if you are not covenant keepers. Right? I hope we all know that, right? That just being a member of Christ United Reformed Church is not going to get you into heaven. Um, what is required? That we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we put our faith in him. Right? That, that's why our baptism form, whenever we read it, we go through it and we remind ourselves there are two parts to every covenant. There, there's a part of this sign and, and seal that represents what God promises. And it puts us under a certain obligation as his people to put our faith and trust in him. And that's what God always wanted from his people, for things not to be merely external and outward, or for his people to put their trust in things that were external and outward. Right? Because there have been people who've said, I'm good, I'm Abraham's child after all. They said that to Jesus. They said that to John the Baptist. I'm a member of God's people. I must be good. And John the Baptist said, you know, God can raise up people from these stones. Jesus said it doesn't matter if you're descended from Abraham. It matters that you believe what Abraham believed. Right? Because if we say, well, well, we're called the church. Well, they were called the church. Well, we have the sign. They had the sign. What did they lack? They lacked faith. They lack the grateful obedience that flows from it. God wants us not just to be covenant people in name only. He wants us to be covenant keepers. To do what's required. To believe in his name. And to render grateful obedience to him. And why is that important? Because judgment is coming. And where does it begin? Not with Assyria, it begins with the household of God. See, that's how this is terribly relevant to us, because there's a judgment coming. There's a time coming when the Lord is going to march out of his holy place and come in glory, and not using a nation like Assyria as his hammer, coming himself to judge the living and the dead. And there's only one way to survive that judgment, to face that judgment and not be consumed. It's by faith in him. It's by being those who keep what, the covenant of what he's called us to do, to put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him. Now, that's the pronouncement of judgment because if you're just a covenant people and not covenant keepers, you'll be shattered in the judgment. That's what comes to this people. They are a shattered nation. That's the word that first comes against Samaria. Samaria in verses 6 and 7 is the target of 
the prophecy. Samaria was the capital city of Israel. When Israel broke off from the kingdom of Judah, they set up their own capital city, kind of their own Jerusalem in the north. It was a city on a hill. It was a fortified city. In a lot of ways, it was more glorious than Jerusalem itself. It was built during the really prosperous years of King Omri and King Ahab, wicked kings in the north, but who were prosperous and who built up the city and and made it with beautiful dressed stones, and it was a nice high place, and idolatry was practiced there. Uh, They turned from the Lord and his true worship, and they set up their own false worship. Of course, King Ahab was a notorious idolater, and that's what Samaria represents, the capital city filled with idolatry of the northern kingdom. It's a place in which idolatry was rampant. And boys and girls, you remember what idolatry is. We talk about that in the catechism. And it gives us a simple definition taken from God's word in question 95. Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the word. And Israel was a place where God had been replaced. God had been replaced with other gods. And so what was going to be the fate of this place on account of their idolatry? God said, I will tear it down to its foundation. All of its fortresses, all of its glorious stones that it's built, I'm going to throw down the hill and I'm going to leave it bare. And it's going to be so bare that someone could walk by and say, oh, this is, this is perfectly plowed to plant something here. It's going to be a chewed up place chewed up and spit out by the judgment of the Lord. And why is he going to do that? He's doing it so he can destroy every vestige of their false religion. This isn't God being sort of petty or mean in doing this. But, but what does idolatry do? It looks to another God and says, this God will protect me. This God will save me. This God will help me. And when God comes against Samaria, what what will their gods do for them? Will their gods protect them? Will their gods save them? No, God will tear down their walls and he'll tear down their city and he'll take their gods and hammer them into pieces. And just as they came in and their wealth was built through cult prostitution, it'll go right back out to the Assyrians. There'll be nothing left. The remnants of their false religion will be destroyed. And Micah sees not just destruction, but exile. They'll be taken away. That's that's the the emphasis of his mourning in verses 8 and 9. It's not sackcloth and ashes, you notice. It's naked and barefoot. That's a picture of exile. That's a picture of people being led away into exile by captors, and that's why he mourns. And he mourns not just for them, but he knows that the destruction of Israel also means the destruction of Judah. Because it's too guilty of something very similar. Um, And so he looks around him and he looks at the familiar cities of Judah that he knows from where he grows up. And he looks around and all he can see is them turning to ash. It's, it's, it's very hard to really know anything about these cities that are listed here. 
Um, but nine, nine of these cities are cities that exist in Judah in the Shephelah, in the kind of low-lying foothill areas, at an elevation of about 500 to 1,500 feet. And where Micah grows up in Moresheth, you can see all of these cities around him. So this is kind of like he's looking out at his, from his hometown at all of the cities he knows in Judah. All these cities that exist in the Shephelah and the foothills leading up to Jerusalem. They're all the places that are familiar to him. And as he looks around at them and thinks about their names, he sees them all turning to ash in ways that are plays on words or in the kind of their names of the cities remind them of destruction. There's very intricate wordplay in Hebrew that's hard to bring out. Um, I, I can try to do it a little bit. I'm not going to do it with all nine cities. Don't worry, boys and girls, there aren't nine subpoints to this point. Um, but, but the wordplay is kind of hard for us to see. But look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 and the judgment that comes um, against Beth-el-Lafra. Beth-el-Lafra, roll yourself in the dust. In Hebrew, Beth-el-Lafra means dusty town. And so it's dusty town, roll yourself in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir. Shafir could mean Beautyville. What's going to happen to Beautyville? It's going to go out in nakedness and shame. Um, there, there's a sequence of, of word plays like this. Or that if you look in Lachish in verse 13, harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. Steeds and Lachish sound very similar in Hebrew. These are elaborate plays on words as it goes through. And someone has said, you know, isn't that a little cutesy? You're seeing the destruction and, and, you're, and you're doing all these like plays on words? Well, why does that come to mind? Um, are these all sort of dad jokes that are, you know, being, that he's thinking of? And, you know, does that really comport with the, 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 the terribleness of this all? But what is, what is happening there? He's looking out at all these places he knows and all these names he knows, and he sees all of them turning to destruction. Lachish, this place that's known for its tech, for its military might, he thinks of the steeds that exist there, and all he can see is them tying up their chariots and then running the opposite way of the fight. You know, sort of like us being, finding out that we're at war and, and seeing a squadron of fighters take off from Miramar and think, okay, good, the good guys are at it. And watch all those fighters turn and run away from the fight. But what would that do to us all? We'd say, well, if they're running away, what, what hope do we have? That's what Mike is doing. He's seeing all these cities and towns he knows and he's seeing them all turn to destruction before the wrath of the Lord. And to sort of highlight this situation, this prophecy starts and ends with places that remind us of events in the life of David. People kind of scratch their heads because they said, you know, most of these cities are cities in Judah, but there's, it begins with one that's a Philistine city. Tell it not in Gath. Well, why, why would you start with a Philistine city? Well, because people who knew their Bibles well, they would hear those words and they would remember that's how David began his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan when they were killed. One of the darkest moments in the life of David when he was lamenting the death of the king and his son. 
um, what, what did he say at that time in 2 Samuel 1, 19 through 20? Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Right. Micah is seeing this, this image. This is the glory of Israel falling. And he's reminded of those words when Israel fell into such disrepair in the days of Saul and Jonathan. And when their glory was snuffed out, that's what he looks out and sees. That's where he begins and that's where he ends. The glory of Israel in verse 15 shall come to Adullam. Maybe remember Adullam as having that cave where David fled to when Saul was chasing him. Um, and he went there and, and his whole household went to meet him there. And they were in this cave fleeing from the wrath of the king. That's, that's what Jer Jerusalem will become. That's what Micah is seeing. It becomes like the cave of Adullam where all of the, the hierarchy, all of David's house so high and lifted up in Jerusalem, it's become like the cave of Adullam. They're all running there. These two low moments in David's life bracket Micah seeing the, the destruction that's going to sweep over Judah and come all the way to the gate of Jerusalem. It's a terrible picture of destruction that he sees. And why is it happening? It's also happening to them because of their idolatry. Um, Judah's idolatry was something of a different kind. They usually did not outright turn away from God altogether. But what they did was they set up other things next to God's worship. And turned it into a kind of whatever you like marketplace. You like the worship of Jehovah, you can have it here. You like the other worship, there are high places, you can do that too. They didn't necessarily replace God, but they put all sorts of things alongside of him. And we see that just how much God regards that as idolatry and hates it all the same. This destruction is coming to both because of idolatry because of the worship of the true God that ex that's been exchanged for a lie. So I always find it fascinating when somebody says, well, you know, God used to care about worship in the Old Testament, but now you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, is that the picture that we have of God? That God, that God is a God who doesn't really care how we worship or who we worship or what we worship alongside of him? Calvin says that that's... The reason the Reformation came. Um, he, had, he had very important words, I think, in his commentary on, on this chapter from Micah. Calvin says this, We see how God regards as nothing whatever men blend with his worship out of their own heads. And this is our principal contest at this day with the Papists, the Church of Rome. We call their perverted and spurious modes of worship abominations. They think that what is heavenly is to be blended with what is earthly. We diligently labor, they say, for this end that God may be worshipped. True, but at the same time you profane his worship by your inventions. And it is therefore an abomination. We now then see how foolish and frivolous are those delusions when men follow their own wisdom and the duty of worshiping God. For Micah here in the name of God fulminates, as it were, from heaven against all superstitions and shows that no sin is more detestable than that preposterous whim with which idolaters are inflamed. 
when they observe such forms of worship as they themselves have invented. God will allow nothing that proceeds from the inventions of men to be joined to his word. The Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. Um, And God doesn't want us replacing him or putting other things alongside of him because he's the only God who can save. He's the only God in whom you can rely. Um, And if you won't rely on him, there's no one else who will deliver you. Right, that's the point. Sort of the point in these judgments that come, God's essentially saying, if you're going to trust these other gods to save you, let them save you. Call out to Baal in your day of need and see if he comes and helps. Um, And we need to hear this because we are so apt to do this. Again, we might easily say, you know what, I was not even tempted to go worship Baal. So I think I'm good. I I mean, thanks for this important pastoral application, but I was not about to go out and offer sacrifices to Zeus. Um, But you see, we, we can find all sorts of things that we can make idols that we can put next to the, to the Lord and trust in him. Um, you know, we can put our bank accounts next to him and trust in those things. And say, that, that will save me. When the day of trouble comes, that, that's what's going to bail me out. We, we can do that with any, any number of things. That's why Calvin said, you know, we don't just point the finger at the church of Rome, we point the finger at ourselves because our hearts are idol factories. We can make anything an idol that we put next to God and we should not do it. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing that we invent that can save us. That's what God is really concerned with. The glory of his name and the good of his people. That they not look to things that can't help and worship gods that are no gods. Um, and so, what is, what is the point? You might have said, I heard you say something about a surviving remnant, so I'm hoping that we're going to come to some hope after a little while. Um, But as I look at this passage, I'm not sure I saw the surviving remnant. Um, I don't think Micah saw the surviving remnant in this particular prophecy. But what the prophets often remind us of is that there's there's always an implicit hope worked in this. Whenever God tells the story of judgment in Scripture, and he does it often, to threaten us with what awaits if we don't turn to him to live, he's always saying to us, it doesn't need to end this way. This ending is not yet written. And it always comes with a plea from God. These idols will not save you. Don't wait until that day when the judgment is sweeping over and you're crying out to these other things to help you when it's too late. Call out to me today. Return to me and I'll return to you, he says. And then you'll find when the day of judgment comes, there'll be safety for you. It'll sweep over, but it won't touch you. You'll be protected by the only one who can protect you from the judgment that's coming. And then when the Lord comes out to judge the heavens and the earth, we'll rejoice. Because we'll know that we're safe from judgment. That's what the prophets always held out to the people. And I think that's, that's, whether Micah knew it or not, because I think he sees the destruction sweeping over Jerusalem, but twice in this passage we're told that the destruction will come up to the gate of Jerusalem. 
And in Micah's time and in Hezekiah's time, destruction did come all the way up to the gate of Jerusalem. There was a time when all of Jerusalem was gone except for, all of Judah was gone except for Jerusalem, all taken over, washed over by the Assyrian army, and, and, the, and the destruction had come right up to the gate. And the, and the Assyrians knew that it was going to be a long, protracted siege of Jerusalem. And so Sennacherib sent a message to Hezekiah, and he said, just give up. And he, said, he sent him a letter and said, you better just give up. And you know why you better just give up? Because I know what you're thinking. You're going to trust your God to bail you out. He said, you know what? I've swept through this whole place and everybody had a God. And I destroyed all of them. They all trusted and called out to their gods and we wiped them all out. Go ahead and call out to your God and see if he helps you. But who's going to deliver you out of my hand? Give up while you still have time. Because no one's coming to save you. And Hezekiah took that letter and he went into the temple and he rolled it out before the Lord. And he laid down before the Lord. And he put that message to the test. Is there no one coming to help us? Is there no hope? Is our God just like all the other gods that failed their people? I want you to listen to his prayer of confidence. That God is not a God like other gods. That God is the Lord and him alone. This is what Hezekiah prays in 2 Kings 19, 15 through 19. O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Syria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Right? He knows there is one God. And he doesn't put his trust anywhere else. He doesn't put trust in anything else alongside of that one God. And what does God do for his people? He utterly wipes them out. Utterly wipes out the Assyrian army that's before their gates. What happens when he turns to the Lord? The Lord returns to him. And now he marches out of his holy place, not against his people, but for them. And the nature cringes and crumples before him as he goes after their adversaries. And they are brought to rejoice in the deliverance that the Lord has brought them. The destruction came up to the gate of Jerusalem, but it did not overcome them. Because they turned to the Lord and called on his name. We have to preach the judgment because it's coming. People don't like to hear it, and we don't like to preach it, and that's not often the great thing to think about on a Sunday morning. But there is a judgment coming, and there's only one way to survive that judgment, and that's by putting your faith in the one God who comes to judge and the only God who can save from the judgment. Um, it's to put our faith and trust 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the wound is incurable. That's the message that came. The wound is incurable. It's incurable because we can't cure it ourselves. If it's going to be cured, it has to be cured by God. We can't make up for our covenant breaking. We can't make ourselves whole again. And so what did God do? He sent forth his son to die for covenant breakers. He sent forth his son to die for those who had willfully transgressed his covenant. His son came into the world as a covenant keeper. The only true Israel of God that's ever existed in this world, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world to keep covenant for us and to die for our covenant breaking so that when the judgment came, we could survive. And that's the only way to survive. If God cures the wound by the blood of his son. And he's done that and he holds that out to us. And says, believe in his name and you'll have life in his name. Then you'll have nothing to fear when the Lord arises from his place and comes in glory to judge the living and the dead. Then that day will be a comfort to you. I'll end with this, but it's the most remarkable thing to me in the Heidelberg Catechism when the question is asked, how does the coming of the Lord in judgment comfort you? How does it comfort you that he's coming to judge the living and the dead? They just assume it's a comfort. And why? Because Jesus has already died the covenant breaker's death. He's already faced the judgment of God against sin. If you put your faith and trust in him, there's no judgment coming for you because it's already come against you in him on his cross. And when we know that, then in the midst of our sorrows and persecutions, we can look and eagerly wait his coming. Be looking for it and yearning for it because we know that his coming is not to deal with us in our sin, but to save us bring us into the rest that awaits the people of God that love him and know him. God wants us to avoid the judgment. God does not want us to be consumed in the judgment that's coming. And there's only one God who can save you from that judgment. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And those who ministered in his name said, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. There's nothing in place of him or alongside of him that will save you from the judgment that's coming. So we're to put our faith and trust in him. We're to renounce all that is opposed to his word and that would compete for his loyalty to serve him in repentance and grateful obedience. And know that if we return to him, he will return to us that we will escape that judgment and that day will not be a great and terrible day for us, but it will be a great and awesome day, the relief of our miseries and the coming of our King. Uh, may all here trust in him alone and find salvation in his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. It's difficult to read words of judgment and lamenting and weeping and Help us, Lord, to 
respect the truth of the judgment that's coming, to react as Micah reacted and to weep and, and lament over those who don't know you and who have no hope of surviving the judgment. May we remember that it's not simply being in church that saves us, but putting our faith and trust in you and in the Son that you've sent that will save us from our sins. May we reflect on the great suffering our Lord endured on our behalf that we see pictured for us in the sacrament, in the breaking breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, that he underwent that terrible judgment in our place so that we might escape that he was broken so that we might be made whole. So Lord, we look to him in faith and find the only cure for our incurable wound and that we might have life in his name and rejoice to have found so great a salvation. Hear us and help us for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.